0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ, we receive Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, the, the Savior of the world. And this is one of the key features about the cross, that Jesus saves us from our sin, which delivers us from wrath and separation from God for all of eternity and places us in the realm of his grace, in the realm of his pleasure. But often overlooked is the reality that we receive so much more from Jesus as a result of the cross than simply that he saved us. That is a paramount feature, but it's good for us to remember that we also receive Jesus as Uh, one who gives us discipline, correction, encouragement, and loves to minister to us directly as our great high priest. And in Revelation 2 and 3, we get a wonderful glimpse of that ministry from Jesus toward his church. Uh, Jesus will write seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches that were found in Asia Minor. The church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each one of these letters is clear, to the point, and addresses seven different types of churches that I think we find alive and well today and also throughout the course of human history. He will address seven different types of Christian. But most importantly, he's addressing seven literal churches that existed at the time of John, speaking to them, ministering to them and desiring to exhort and instruct them. Now, some people have noted through revelation two and three, that there seems to be a similarity between the way that these seven churches flow and the flow of the different ages of the church over the last 2000 years. And if that's the case, then many would point out that we are moving into and are strongly into the age of the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the final era and the final age. I don't know that that's entirely the case, but it's a wonderful and interesting point to at least consider. But for me, I'm going to teach this from the vantage point that these are seven literal churches that Jesus was ministering to and asking the question, what can we glean from Jesus' letter to these seven literal churches and apply in our modern context. Now, each one of these letters follows a very simple flow. Jesus will describe himself first. After he describes himself, he will uh, give them any commendation that he can give them, any correction that he needs to give them, any counsel that he needs to give them, and then he will close with his covenant or his promise for them, So let's get into this study of these seven letters, starting out with the letter of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, he writes in verse 1, write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so he writes the letter, every letter will start with, and to the angel of the specific church in a specific city. And as I mentioned in chapter 1, that could be translated to the messenger of the church in Ephesus and so forth. And so it's possible that he's writing to the eldership inside of each church, the lead pastor inside of each church in each city, Uh, But it's also very possible that he's actually addressing this first to the spiritual uh, realm, to the angel of, an actual real angel that Jesus is speaking this to. But nonetheless, it's to the church in Ephesus. And he says it this way. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I I told you uh, in chapter 1 that Jesus is going to describe himself to every single church here in Revelation 2 and 3 in seven different ways. And each description that Jesus chooses to give to each particular church is actually a prescription of what they really need to grab a hold of. And this is what I really believe. I think that really the answer to the ills and the problems that we might experience in life and that we might experience in the church, if we could understand different elements of the character and the nature of Christ, the problems would be addressed. We'd be encouraged and we would grow. For instance, here in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus had a problem of leaving their first love. And what Jesus tells them about himself is he says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars or the seven angels or the seven leaders of your churches. I hold them in my right hand and I am walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which we learned in chapter one, are the churches. So he's holding the leadership and he's walking in the midst of the churches. And what had they done? They had left their first love. In other words, they had left, but Jesus had not. They may have let go of him, but he had not let go of them. They may have walked away from him in their first love, but he had not walked away from them. Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. And for this church, if they could discover that and know that, it would cause them to be stirred up and to to feel a sense of remorse over the waning hearts that they had and possessed and it would cause them to return to him and so jesus describes himself and really prescribes himself to the church in ephesus now the city of ephesus at that time was a fascinating city Uh, probably around five hundred thousand people Lived in this particular city. It was a city of great prominence. It had a temple dedicated to Diana or Artemis uh, there in the city, a, an incredible place of which we have great ruins even today. And it had a twenty-five thousand seat amphitheater inside of the city, and it was a it was an amazing church that lived inside of that city. Uh, Paul, in Acts chapter 19, had gone to the city of Ephesus to preach the gospel. After preaching for a season, he then pulled back with a small number of disciples. And with those disciples, every single day, he taught them in the school of Tyrannus. And in a period of two years, as a result of that school of ministry, all of Asia had heard the word of God. And I think it was there in Ephesus that Paul had discovered the glorious principle of ministry that he taught in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that God has given to the church messengers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. I think he discovered this glorious truth that it's actually the saints that can do the ministry. And so the church in Ephesus was very healthy, very strong. They'd been pastored by Paul. They were then later pastored by Timothy and they had also church history at least tells us were pastored by the Apostle John So they had a strong heritage great leaders great pastors a wonderful foundation and Jesus alludes to that in verse 2 in his commendation of them he says I know your works He'll tell this to every single church. I know I know something about you and here he says I know your works I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so he commends them to begin. He's got these wonderful things to say about them, and who doesn't want to hear Jesus himself say wonderful things? about them. And notice these five things that he points out. He says, I know your works, your toil. I know your labor, he says. The church in Ephesus, they were a working church. And Jesus saw this. Jesus knew this. As I said, they had reached into all of Asia. They were a laboring church. They took seriously the commission of Christ to go into all of the world and to preach the gospel. And so they were a working church. It reminds me of that quote of Charles Spurgeon. He's speaking of lazy believers. He said, A lifetime of such work as theirs would not exhaust a butterfly. That would not be said of the church in Ephesus. They worked diligently. They worked hard. They were a fervent group of believers laboring well. But he also commended them for their patient endurance. They weren't only a working church, but they were a patient church, an enduring church. And this is a great way to do ministry, I believe, is to have great patience, to have great endurance. We often want to see marvelous fruit appear immediately. We want to see God do amazing things immediately. And sometimes he does. Sometimes the work is very fast. I've had f- friends and I've seen men who have planted churches and within, you know, four Three, five years have watched these churches turn into, you know, mega churches or mini mega churches and, and just doing amazing things. But even in the midst of that kind of environment, there is a sense of slowness, a feeling of slowness. Even when you're in it, it feels like something that's taking a while. And Jesus looked at the church in Ephesus and said, I commend you for being patient. You have a long view in mind. And I'd encourage you, if you're in ministry, if you're serving the Lord in any capacity, I'd encourage you to take the long view, to think about what you're building in the long run and over the long haul. Because if you minister with endurance, you're going to build something that lasts, something that endures. And that was the church in Ephesus. They They ministered with patient endurance and he says, and and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Number three, they were a pure church. Uh, Acts 19 records that at the birth of this church, they burned their magic books. They, They were pure. They wanted to walk with God and Jesus also says, number four, that they were a discerning church. They had tested those who called themselves apostles and were not and found them to be false. They they knew the word of God. They, they were a solid group of believers who could search the scriptures and decide what was true and what was not. What was false and what was real. And number five, they had endured patiently and patiently were bearing up for His name's sake, and they had not grown weary. They were that enduring church. So they were working, they were patient, they were pure, they were discerning, and they were enduring, running that marathon and that race that was in front of them. Jesus had wonderful things to say about the church in Ephesus, but verse four, he begins to correct them and give them counsel. Following his correction, he says, "But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love." You had at first. Their love for Christ, their initial burst of thanksgiving and and gladness at the gospel had begun to wane. And I think you see this a lot in churches that are like the church in Ephesus. You know, churches that know the word, that have a great heritage, who are able to discern truth from error and error from truth. I think churches that have a deep love for God's word, one danger for them and one tendency that they can easily slip into is the absence of their first love. They move away from a simple love for Christ, a simple love for him and a simple love for his word. They move away from that into perhaps quote-unquote deeper things and falling in love perhaps with knowledge and falling in love with being right. Falling in love with good sermons and good presentations, and really growing dry in personal worship, growing dry in personal devotion and love for Christ. That's why, for for me and the ministry that God has placed me in, the church that God has placed me in, you know, I love to tell our church that one of our core and guiding values and principles is an absolute devotion to the Word of God, and for us in our context, an allegiance to expositional, verse-by-verse teaching. We love that. But what I also tell them is I say, but it is more important to me that we would be a church that loves Christ than a church that loves His Word. Because if we're just simply a church that is studious, yet dry, we'll be poison for the world that we live in. No, I think it's important for the word to have an exalted position inside of the body of Christ, but for Jesus himself to have the preeminent position inside of the body of Christ. And so to always make sure, because you can preach the word of God without preaching the gospel. And so Jesus should be intertwined into every single message He must be the hero of the church. And the church in Ephesus had lost that flavor and had lost that passion. You've turned from your first love. And so here Jesus counsels them. He says this is what you need to do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember that point. Remember how you used to be. Remember the fire that you used to experience. Remember the way that you used to be so stinking zealous for Jesus. Then he says, verse 5, he says, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent of your current condition. Repent of your apathy. Repent of that you know, lofty position that you feel that you're in of being a person that knows the word and you're very grounded and you're very proud of yourself, but the reality is you have no passion. You have no zeal for the Lord. He says, repent of that reality. Don't excuse it. This is what people do. They excuse it. Well, I'm older now. I'm more mature now. I'm more grounded now. And Jesus says, don't make an excuse for it. Don't explain it, but repent of it repent of that attitude and then he says and go back and practice the works you did at first do the works that you did at first come back to your first love by going back to your first works now i love this he's saying align your priorities once again now what is jesus saying is he saying you need to go back and do a bunch of different things you need to busy yourself. No, think about the things that you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. What were you doing? You were worshiping him. You were into worship. It wasn't the, you know, the music during the church service wasn't the warm up to the message, which was what you were really there to receive. No, it was an opportunity for you to pour out your heart to Jesus, whom you love. You would wake up in the morning You would open his word and you would spend time with him. You love to fellowship with Jesus. You love to cry out to him, not because it was an obligation, not because it was a duty, but because of love. And so what Jesus is saying is practice those things once again. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he was speaking of finances in that Passage and speaking of as you give and as you trust the Lord with your finances and as you're generous with them, as you give, your heart is going to follow your treasure. And I think one treasure that we have is our time. And as we pour our time into worship and spending time in the presence of the Lord, devotionally, prayer, as we do, our heart will begin to return to the Lord. He says, Remember from where you've fallen, repent of your current state, and do once again those first works. Jesus then warns them and says, If not, verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'll remove you from my presence. A stern warning from Jesus. Then he says in verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the the question, of course, is who are the Nicolaitans? Who are the Nicolaitans? Uh, Some believe that these Nicolaitans had produced some kind of strand of immoral teaching in the early church. Uh, This would bear witness to the church in Pergamos, who in chapter 2, verse 15, we'll discover, love the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Others perhaps just interpret this by looking at the word Nicolaitan itself, coming from the word Nikeo, which means uh, conquering, and Leos, meaning the people. And so the conquering of, the ruling over, the people, or the ruling over the laity. Perhaps you recognize that word. And so there could have been some kind of religious system being established where rather than being a body, there are those who are over and dominating the people inside of the church. Either way, it was a false teaching, a false doctrine that the church in Ephesus had rejected. And Jesus was pleased with them for it. And He says of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, he says, which I also hate. Strong words from Christ. He hates something. Of course, he doesn't hate the people here, but he hates their deeds. And so he hates the sin, but not the sinners. And so Jesus hating this. And then he says in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant... To eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so to each church he'll say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then here, the promise that he gives the church in Ephesus is that if you conquer, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I've already mentioned in this study of the book of Revelation that we see the tree of life in Genesis chapter 3 and we'll see it again in heaven in revelation 22 and so jesus holds out the promise of the tree of life endure conquer overcome and you will eat of the tree of life just a beautiful beautiful reality now jesus then moves on in chapter 2 verse 8 and he writes a letter to the church in smyrna he says to so the angel of the church in smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now the city of Smyrna was a wealthy city founded by Alexander the Great and uh, on a trade route from India and Persia to Rome. Uh, they were loyal to Rome. They had built a temple to the spirit of Rome. They worshipped dead emperors. They worshipped living emperors. They won a right to build a temple to the worship of Tiberius Caesar before the time of this church. And so they were a city that was very loyal to Rome. And so because of that, the church inside of the city was deeply and greatly persecuted. And so Jesus writes a short little letter to this church that suffered the most. And notice how Jesus describes himself to this suffering persecuted church. He describes himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, our faith would be futile without the resurrection. And it has a deep significance to our theology. But here Jesus isn't speaking of his resurrection in a theological sense. He's speaking of it in a very comforting sense. He's just trying to comfort the church in Smyrna by saying, Listen. I know that you're suffering. Remember, I'm the one who died and came to life. I've suffered and I've resurrected. I came to life and you will make it too. You'll survive, you'll live, you'll thrive because of me. He encourages them with his description of himself. Then he commends them in verse 9. No correction for this church, just a commendation and some counsel. He says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, you know, I know. I know your tribulation. I know that you're suffering. I see the physical persecution that you are enduring. Matthew 10, verse 30. Jesus counts the very hairs on our heads. And so Jesus knows, and he he knows because he saw it, but he knew because he'd experienced it. Hebrews 4, verse 15. He has been tempted and tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. And he says, I know your tribulation. And then he says, and I also, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. They had been physically persecuted, but also more than likely financially persecuted, shut out by the culture in which they were living. And I think as time goes on, as in many different countries on the world, Christians will more and more be physically persecuted and also financially persecuted and shut out of the culture and by the culture. But Jesus says, but here's what you need to know. But you are rich, he says in that parenthesis in verse 9. In other words, you have an eternal glory that is coming. And this is the paradox of Christianity. You know, we might experience persecution and poverty here, but we'll experience glory and blessing there. And so he says, but you are rich. And they had experienced slander, he says in verse 9. He'd seen it. From those who say that, that they are Jews, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. It's a harsh words, strong words here from Jesus. There were Jewish persecutors in Smyrna. And Jesus says, They're actually the synagogue of Satan. I hate that persecution, and I love my people. He says, do not fear, verse 10, what you're about to suffer. This is his counsel. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus wasn't going to deliver them from their persecution and their suffering, but he told them not to fear it. And, uh, you know, the idea that good, solid, healthy Christians will never experience pain or tribulation or difficulty is a ridiculous one, a silly one. Jesus said to them, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And so Jesus says, I know that some of you will be thrown into prison, and some of you will suffer tribulation. Not the great tribulation, but just actual tribulation. We're not here to experience the wrath of God, but here they would experience the wrath of of the devil for a set period of time for 10 days. And some would point here to these 10 days as the 10 major Roman persecutions. All I know is that it would encourage them that it was only for a set amount of time. Be faithful, Jesus said, unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. A beautiful promise of the trophy of the crown of life and the promise that the second death will not get them, but that they will experience life. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the church in Smyrna would not experience that second death, but they would experience life. And Jesus tried to, Give them that eternal perspective. And perhaps you're suffering today. Remember the future glory that is yours in Christ. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at NateHoldridge.com.